Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 497. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living author interview series, our guest today is Rodri Jeffries-Jones. Rodri Jeffries-Jones is Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Edinburgh. His book, The Nazi Spy Ring in America, is the subject of our conversation today and his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation November 18th. More details about Rodri Jeffries-Jones and his Smithsonian Associates presentation are available in the show notes and our website. In the mid-1930s, just as the United States was embarking on a policy of neutrality, Nazi Germany launched a program of espionage against the unwary nation. Hitler attempted to interfere in American affairs by spreading anti-Semitic propaganda, stealing military technology, and mapping U.S. defense systems. In a fascinating illustrated presentation, historian Rodri Jeffries-Jones offers insights into the role of espionage in shaping American perceptions of Germany in the years leading up to the country's entry into World War II. And Rodri Jeffries-Jones sheds light on a significant episode in the history of international relations and the development of the FBI. Using recently declassified documents, Rodri Jeffries-Jones tells us how Germany's foreign intelligence service, the Abwehr, was able to steal top-secret American technology such as a prototype code-breaking machine and data about the latest American fighter planes. Rodri Jeffries-Jones also gives us a special glimpse into Leon Thoreau, the FBI agent who helped bring down the Nazi spy ring in a case that quickly transformed into a national sensation. The arrest and prosecution of four members of the ring was a high-profile case with all the trappings of great fiction, although this is all fact. You'll hear about fast cars, louche liaisons, a murder plot, a Manhattan socialite, and a ringleader codenamed Agent Sex. The time was mid-evening, September 27th, 1935. The place, Pier 86, on the Hudson River in New York City. The guard wearing U.S. Customs Service badge number 572 was Modest Josephs. His gaze fell upon a familiar scene. Passengers, relatives, and friends milled around in an excited throng, anticipating the departure of the North German Lloyd steamship Europa. Just after 8.30 p.m., Josephs, a key musician, spied a smooth-faced man in a dark hat carrying on board what appeared to be a violin case. Citizens of that mobster-ridden era knew how Thompson submachine guns fit snugly into such receptacles, and the customs guards stayed alert. After a short while, the smooth-faced man left the ship and walked back down the pier with the object still tucked under his arm. At 8.50 p.m., Joseph arrested him. Upon closer inspection, the parcel, which was not even a violin case, contained neither a gun nor a Stradivarius. It did, however, contain copies of military plans. The man in the dark hats was Wilhelm Willy Lonskowski, codename Sex. When the American press belatedly found out about him, one journalist declared that he was the cream among spies. This is a fascinating, previously unheard story. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone, 
Rodri Jeffries-Jones. Rodri Jeffries-Jones, welcome to the program. Thank you. Really, this is going to be a fascinating interview. Your new book is titled The Nazi Spy Ring in America. You're going to be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates coming up. And I wonder if you'd tell us just briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation and maybe how you're going to use Zoom. We're all using Zoom these days, but perhaps tell us a little bit about the presentation and how you'll use Zoom to engage our audience. The title of the lecture is Hitler's Spies in America, the FBI in the case that stirred the nation. It'll address the themes of my book, but uh, with a couple of differences. There'll be more extensive illustrations, photographs, and cartoons through the medium of PowerPoint. And I'll raise questions that go a little bit beyond the text. For example, I'll offer some thoughts on the case of Agnes Driscoll, the respected American cryptanalyst, a U.S. Navy employee. Driscoll had helped to develop a a code-breaking machine, a forerunner of computer technology. FBI informants stated that she sold the machine twice, once to the Navy and then for a slightly higher price to the other Germany's secret service. As I say, Rodri Jeffries-Jones, this is going to be a fascinating interview because there's a real, there's a very serious espionage plot at the heart of your book, uh, The Nazi Spy Ring in America. And I wonder if you'd tell us just briefly a little bit about that, because this was the first true espionage uh, plot that the FBI had become responsible for. And there was just this fascinating, brazen, I'll say, impersonation of the Secretary of State Cordell Hull at the heart of this. So maybe give us a little bit of uh, uh, what that story is about, too. Well, contrary to the terms of the Versailles Peace Treaty at the end of the First World War, in 1920, Germany established its new secret service, the Abwehr. And by the mid-20s, the Abwehr was spying on America. But with the advent of Hitler in 1933, there was a step change. Now, Hitler had contradictory objectives. First, he wanted to befriend the United States as a means of bringing America into the Nazi orbit. He encouraged German-American associations like Friends of the New Germany and its successor, the Bund. And things looked, looked promising for him as America developed doubts about its involvement in World War I and passed the Neutrality Acts of 1935 to 1937. And indeed, later on, three years grew in America of a Hitlerite fifth column that would subvert the nation from within. But second, Hitler wanted to build up Germany into a military superpower. So he spied on America's advanced technologies. There was a further boost to Nazi espionage in 1935 when Hitler appointed an able new spy chief, Admiral Canaris. And in turn, Canaris appointed an able spy master called Erich Pfeiffer to run espionage operations against the United States. Now, you mentioned the impersonation of Secretary of State Cordell Hull. Mm -hmm. This arose from Hitler's determination to send penetrative agents into communist Russia. The other wanted to equip these agents with U.S. passports. One of its New York agents, Gunther Rumrich, called the passport division claiming to be Mr. Hull, demanding the delivery of 25 passport application forms. But... He couldn't mimic Hull's distinctive 
Tennessee accents hmm. and passports personnel so through the ruse. The NYPD, New York Police Department, laid a trap and arrested Rumrich. And in his briefcase, they found evidence of a plot to kidnap a U.S. Army officer and evidence that pointed to the existence of a well-organized spying. Again, fascinating. The book is wonderful, and uh, the title is The Nazi Spy Ring in America. Uh, our guest today is Rodri Jeffries Jones, who will be at the Smithsonian Associates presentation coming up. One of the main characters, uh, Leon Thoreau, is is his name, I, I believe. And this was a new name, of course, perhaps even a new name in the world of espionage. Uh, and J. Edgar Hoover had handpicked Leon Thoreau to head up this Nazi spy ring case, the very first Nazi espionage case. And Thoreau's experience really was with the Lindbergh kidnapping case, which many in our audience will probably uh, remember. But is that why uh, Hoover picked him? Were there other reasons behind the selection of Leon Thoreau to, to head this up? Because that, I thought that was an interesting choice. Well, I think there's a lot to what you say, Paul. Uh, Thoreau had played a leading role in the Lindbergh case. I mean, he sat down for hours with Bruno Hauptmann, who was suspected of kidnapping and murdering the famous aviator's uh, toddler son. Mm -hmm. He had the knack of winning the confidence, even of suspects who knew that by confessing to him, they'd be signing their own death warrants. And in the case of Hauptmann, in fact, he died in the electric chair in 1936. Okay, so who was Leon Theroux? He was born in Kobrin, a Polish town under Russian occupation, and first arrived in America in 1913. He spoke seven languages, and that was one reason why J. Edgar Hoover desperately wanted him to join the bureau. Another of his characteristics, though, was that he was a liar. Mm. He claimed on the radio that he was an orphan, but he was not. He claimed not to be Jewish, but he was. Now, being a liar perhaps helped him to spot Mendacity and others, mm -hmm. making him the FBI's best and highest paid mm -hmm. detective by 1938. But when he crossed swords with Hoover, his unreliability was used against him. He was fired, blacklisted, and after the Second World War, lived in France. So it's not surprising that Americans stopped remembering who he was. I think it's worth mentioning that he was wounded fighting against Germany in the First World War, and in World War II, he received the Bronze Star, the Croix de Guerre, and the Légion d'Honneur. You know, as I say, I loved the book, and, and the book is getting great reviews online. I didn't know of, of any of this, and I, I do enjoy history, especially around World War II, but I wonder, at this time, this was the very first espionage case, I've, I've said that a couple times now, so... So Americans probably weren't even aware of, of some of this. But I wonder, as it became more known, was there a concern on the part of the Americans about this, about the, the Nazi Abwehr uh, spies and their infiltration in, into America? And I wonder, how did this change, perhaps, the sentiment towards World War II as it started to come to light a bit? Well, I think, Paul, that uh, subliminally, Americans knew about spies. Mm -hmm. uh, they knew they hit the been to the cinema and seen movies like Mata Hari, 39 Steps. Uh, they were very keen on reading spy thrillers. And most Americans would have remembered about German espionage in World War I. But psychologically, 
the nation had put the reality behind it. There was a, a, a mood of naive uh, optimism. For example, um, epitomized in the Kellogg-Brio non-aggression pact of the 1920s, which were really bits of paper where the United States and another country would agree not to go to war. Organs like the New York Times insisted that spying was outmoded in a new age of scientific transparency. Hmm. Uh, but, of course, uh, things weren't quite, quite uh, like that. Um, and and there, was, there were practical repercussions for the attitude. Uh, the defense industry was uh, too open. Uh, for example, they used waste paper baskets. They used trash bins and put secret in. <laughs> when they rejected a piece of information with secret information, they would just throw it in the trash, which obviously made them vulnerable. There was no counterintelligence organization in the United States. The Secret Service had done that in the First World War. But now uh, it's concentrated on looking after the president and his entourage. The FBI was a crime-busting agency until it was put in charge of the investigation of the Nazi spying, and only then uh, did it become a counter-espionage agency. So the highly publicized arrests and sensational trial in the fall of 1938 shocked the general public much more than foreign events such as uh, Kristallnacht, which happened at the same time in Germany. Mm. True and like-minded people followed up the trial with ferocious publicity campaign against the Nazis, and by 1939, opinion was shifting decisively against Germany. The nation was not yet ready for war, but Hitler realized he'd be fighting against and not with the United States should war come about. Hitler was interfering, as you suggest, with American affairs. He was spreading anti-Semitic propaganda. He was stealing this technology, um, trying to map uh, some of the U.S. defenses. Very much uh, what we see perhaps uh, Putin doing and, and Russia. And so I, I wonder what the parallels are that, that you drew uh, from the book as, uh, you know, about foreign governments and their attempts to perhaps undermine the U.S. democracy. Well, I think it's part of a long uh, continuum. Mm. In, in the uh, 1790s, in the presidency of uh, John Adams, uh, there was the XYZ affair, uh, an espionage case that turned opinion in the United States against France. And as you say, there's the, uh, the case of Hitler's attempts to intervene in American politics, which uh, similarly backfired. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Second World War, it's worth mentioning that the British tried to sway American politics by secret means using disinformation and uh, secret subventions of US dollars and so on. But there was no great reaction against the British, partly, I think, because opinion had already settled into hostility to the Nazis, and partly because the secret remained well guarded until after the war. Now, you can't say the same of the later 1940s spy cases, Alger Hess, Fuchs, Rosenberg trials, stirred various reactions, but they all smacked of Soviet interference with hostile intent. And the use of local communist countries within the United States was especially unacceptable. And the result was intensified opposition to Moscow. So that kind of backfired. I think on, on a lesser scale, you could also say that the Wen Ho Lee spy case of 1999 mm -hmm. 
that helped to consolidate opinion against China. But of course, there was no attempt to uh, subvert American democracy in that particular case. Now, today, allegations of foreign clandestine interference are potent weapons, I think, in the uh, American political arsenal. Russia, Iran, and China have all offended public opinion. The manipulation of democracy via social media and cyber warfare is the name of the game today. That's a little different from the 1930s, but I think it still provokes outrage and is likely to prove counterproductive. Rodri Jeffrey Jones, what a fascinating book. Again, the title of the book is The Nazi Spying in America. Rodri Jeffrey Jones will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates Program coming up here November 18th. It's an afternoon presentation. We're going to put links up to where our audience can find out more information about Rodri Jeffrey Jones, as well as the Smithsonian Associates links and the uh, details around the presentation. But Rodri Jeffries Jones, thank you so much for your time today. This is fascinating. I, I, I could talk to you uh, for a long time about this subject, but but the book, which is getting rave reviews, is just fantastic. I encourage our audience to check out the book and check out Rodri Jeffries Jones' upcoming presentation at Smithsonian. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. My thanks to Rodri Jeffries Jones for his generous time today. Please check out the show notes for more details about Rodri Jeffries Jones and his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, which will be wonderful. My thanks to the generosity of the Smithsonian Associates team and for all they do to support the show. My thanks too to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please practice smart social distancing, be safe, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.